0: صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فرعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا سلوا عليه بسلمة تسليما. Allahumma who must allow Mohammed in Wallah, Ali Mohammed, Kamasalate, Allah, Ibrahim, Wallah, Ali Ibrahim in the Khamid and Majid. Allah, whom Mabarik, Allah, Mohammed in Wallah, Ali Mohammed, Kamabarak, Allah, Ibrahim, Wallah, Ali Ibrahim in the Khamid and Majid. Respect to listeners, Assalamu alaikum, Rahmatullah, Ibrahim. As announced, Inshallah. I'll speak on the topic of the pursuit of perfection. What do we mean by this? To some degree, all human beings, all of us are perfectionists. We want everything to be perfect. Everything to be in its proper place. We want things to be orderly, on time, on routine, everything in its place. Now, to some degree, this is normal, to be expected, and it's good, but only to a certain degree. For things to be routine, orderly, in place on time, proper, prim. All of this is good and well, but only to a certain degree. Beyond which, like anything, if it's taken out of moderation, out of balance, and it becomes an unhealthy obsession, then it's problematic. It's problematic in many ways. It, it's counterproductive. We want things to be in place. We want, to be, we want things to be in place, things to be proper, on time, on routine. We want things to be complete, to feel complete within. We want things to be good and proper in order to feel good. Once it becomes an unhealthy obsession and we take it beyond that reasonable limit, it's counterproductive in the sense that it actually makes us feel very bad. Rather than making us feel complete, it makes us agitated, aggressive, unpleasant. And it's mentally and emotionally damaging. Now, what does this have to do with Spirituality, or with with what Islam teaches us. Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, in Surah Al-Ahzab, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُوا اللَّهَ وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرِ وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا Surely there is for you, in the messenger of Allah, a beautiful example. A beautiful model for one who fears Allah and the final day and who remembers Allah excessively. What this verse tells us is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the Prophet's life, his character, his person, his personality, an example to follow, a model, to emulate. But only for a certain type of people. He's a role model, but only for a certain type of people. It depends on what you want. If you want the dunya, if you want the world, then Rasulullah is not an example. It's not even a suitable example for you. He is not a role model for you. He is not a model to be emulated or an example to be followed. Allah says that. That surely there is for you. And what's the definition of for you? It doesn't mean all of you. It comes later. For you, i.e. for those of you who fear Allah, who fear the final day and who remember Allah excessively. Rasulullah is a role model for these people, not for, not for anyone and everyone, because it depends on what you want. If you want the dunya, he is not a role model for you. If you want the pleasures of the world, he is not a role model for you. If your horizon ends with only what you can see, before you, around you. And the limits of your vision is a few score years of this life. And you cannot see beyond that. You have no concept, or maybe you do have a concept, but no fear of the final reckoning, of the final day. You are not attached and connected to Allah. You do not fear Allah. You do not remember Allah excessively. Then, if this is your state, Rasulullah is not a role model for you. So, it really depends on what we want. If we want Allah, if we fear Allah, if we fear the final day, if we remember Allah excessively, then indeed Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam, is the perfect role model and example for us, and the Prophet sallallahu life can teach us so much, and it can teach us to correct this obsession with perfection in us because it's unhealthy and I don't wish to speak about perfectionism as a condition or OCD as a mental state or a problem what I wish to draw our attention to is how this is damaging us spiritually it's preventing us from progressing indeed and how we can learn from the life of Rasulullah and the lives of his family and noble companions. In our desire for perfectionism, which, when taken to unhealthy and unhealthy extents, becomes OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And we all suffer from it to some degree. We want everything to be in place. And this perfectionism extends to what we do in terms of our religion and our relationship with Allah. One of the problems is contingency. And I don't mean contingency in terms of preparing for uh, disasters or preparing for crises Or preparing for emergencies, even in our own personal lives. No. What I mean by contingency is that we make other things contingent on things being orderly, on time, routine and perfect. So, for instance, many of us, at the back of our mind, we know that we have a duty to Allah. We have a duty to ourselves spiritually. Spiritual life matters. But we postpone these things. And we make our attention and devotion to our spirit and our inner self contingent on so many other external things. So, famously, we have milestones. A good career, a good job, a good income, a good marriage a good home and we have everything plotted and charted out and we believe that unless all of these things are in place and in order and available and everything is settled, only then we can settle down. So I have to finish my education before I can focus on myself. I have to get a good job. I have to settle down financially, I have to make sure that my house is built and complete, I have to make sure that things are in order in my life, here, there, my business is up and running, my work is guaranteed, my income is steady, Uh, my financial position is stable, my marital situation, first is I have to get married and then after marriage, I have to have children, and then after children, I have to have a good family, and then things have to be settled at home. We make our devotion and attention to our inner self and our spirit and our ruh, which is the essence of life, we make this attention and devotion contingent upon all of these things being perfect and orderly. We're always, and these are just things in our personal life, Apart from that, we feel confused, bewildered, saddened. Of course, uh, it's inevitable that we will feel confused and bewildered and saddened, but to such a degree that it paralyzes us. We don't do things, and what I'm, we don't do the necessary things for ourselves. What I mean by confusion and bewilderment and sorrow is when we see things around us, our own situation. The situation around us in the world, whether it's political, whether it's social. We want things to be perfect everywhere. We want everything to be organized, everything to be in place. I.e., they sh- there should be no disturbance No turbulence, no problems, no issues. Everything grieves us in politics, in life, in society, in community, in our own lives, in our families. The world around us, we feel is not perfect. And it's almost as though we think, once the world becomes perfect around us, I will feel better, I will be able to focus on myself, and focus on my spirit. This is not what Islam teaches us. It's not. What Allah and his Rasul wasallam have taught us in the Qur'an, in the life of the Prophet wasallam, in the lives of the messengers, is that there will always be chaos. There will be. There will always be problems. The world is not perfect around us. And Allah has not destined for the dunya to be perfect. And we have no control over the world around us. The only thing we have some control over is ourselves. And that's what we should be focusing on. A good example is uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Amr عنه, he relates uh, his own story it's a hadith related by many authors yes. including Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad that once I was Imam Tirmidhi Imam Abu Dha will relate this hadith as well he says that once I was repairing a shack of ours with my mother so his mother was actually helping him and they were both repairing well he says we and he also mentions his mother so it may be he, he and his mother or more family members but they were repairing a, the word in the hadith is khus and what's a khus? it's not even a house, it's a wooden shack so the shack had lent and it was about to collapse so they were repairing the shack, the wooden shack the Prophet sallallahu passed by and he said, What are you doing? So they said, Ya Rasulullah, we are repairing this shack of ours. So the Prophet said, Ma al amr illa that I do not see the affair, except that it's swifter and faster than even this. Meaning the affair means the final hour. And the final hour is our departure from this world. Our sa'a, in Arabic it's known as sa'a, the hour. And the hour could refer to a saatul kubra meaning the great hour, i.e., yawmul qiyamah, the day of reckoning, when the world will come to an end. That's the final hour. So the final hour of the world, Or it can just refer to a saat al-soghrah, meaning the lesser final hour, the end of our world. And this is why, uh, in Arabic, in Islamic terms, qiyamah, sa'ah, the resurrection, the reckoning, the final hour, it doesn't always refer to the great disaster. No, it just refers to the world coming to an end. Now, whether it's a whole world that comes to an end, or whether it's our world that comes to an end, it's our final hour. And most importantly, Rasulullah here was saying that the affair, meaning the final hour, our departure from this world is quicker and swifter than this. What this hadith teaches us is we need to get our priorities in order. The world will never be perfect. And this idea that I have to do A, B, C, D, E before I can settle down, before I can focus on myself. Why am I saying this? If I can be a bit more frank and open. Some people actually say this openly. So they say, look, I can't devote myself to religion. I can't concentrate on religious observance. I can't pray or fast or fulfil my religious duty. I can't con- concern myself with religious education and until I get married, until I get a good job, until I complete my education. In fact, in the previous generation, and as well as before, sometimes older family members would actually say this. They would say this openly the traditional thinking and mentality was that young people should not concern themselves with religion. Religion is for the elderly. So once you retired from the world, this was actually the thinking and mentality. And it remains so in some quarters. That once you retire from the world, so you've worked all your life, you've completed your education, you've built your career, you've built your business, you have your home or homes, you have your family, your children are married off, now you are retired from the world, you're a person of leisure, now you can start frequenting the masjid. Now you can start practicing and becoming religiously observant. Now you can start worrying about departing from this world in your twilight years. that actually, this persists as a mentality, and this filters through to others, and in fact, at times, it's imposed. So there are uh, many stories of parents, not even young, but elderly parents, forcing their children not to practise, preventing them from practising verbally abusing them, if they see them becoming religiously observant and telling them in as many words that this isn't the time for you to pray or fast or be religious. This isn't the time for you. Now the time for you is to learn, to earn, to build a family, to look after yourself, your children, to earn enough wealth, the idea is that everything is in stages and religion is for retirement. Rasulullah did not teach us that. Rasulullah taught us to prioritize. The truth is, we will never have enough time. Coming to. No one has time. No one. No one has all the time in the world. And we find it difficult, it's not easy, to take time out to pray, to fulfill our religious obligations, or even to improve ourselves. So, for instance, to come to gatherings such as this, to learn, to listen to the words of Allah and his Rasul, sallallahu to improve ourselves. It's not easy, it's time-consuming. But we have to prioritize. There are never enough hours and minutes in a day to do all that we want. There never are. But we have to prioritise. We won't be able to do everything, so we need to plan and just decide what are my priorities. In productivity, we, when P in management skills, in productivity skills, one of the great lessons that is taught is this, that you won't be able to do everything. So you need to look at your tasks. Even our task list task list is very long. So you need to filter your tasks and see which ones are routine and maintenance and which ones are productive in the sense that they actually lead you towards achieving your goals and objectives. So if your goal is to expand your business, then you look through your tasks. Now most of those tasks you will realize are routine. Do the accounts, order supplies, complete cleaning, sort out this, sort out that. These tasks are important but they are maintenance tasks and routine. Strictly speaking, these routine maintenance tasks don't advance your goals. They maintain your business, but they don't actually advance your goals and don't lead you to achieving your objective. But if you look through that list, there will always be a few, very few tasks which you will realise that they aren't routine or maintenance. If you do them, They actually propel you forward. They lead you to achieving your goals and your objectives. Not that the others are not important. They are important, but these are vital to helping you achieve your goals. So, even in productivity skills and management skills, one of the great things that is taught is this. That distinguish between routine and maintenance tasks and those tasks that leads you towards your objectives and goals, that actually push you and propel you forward. And the idea behind it is, you will never be able to do all your tasks. You have to prioritize. Another good skill which is taught, and which, in fact, we can apply to ourselves, someone once asked me that, how do you get through your work? Same as everyone else. Endless list of tasks. Well one good skill is this which is that if you are about to travel you're about to leave the country and you're travelling for a moderate period not just for a few days but let's say a month or so and you now have to Prepare for your journey. Obviously, preparing for your journey is not just about packing, but it's also about sorting things out before you go. Now, this is a good skill. What happens when we are travelling? We're about to travel, we look through our list of tasks, and we just cross out or postpone or ignore so many, i.e., This is unimportant. This can wait. This can wait. I've only got two days left before I travel. In those two days, what do I have to do? Forget these routine maintenance tasks. Out of the way. If I start doing them, I'll miss my flight, I'll miss my journey, I'll miss my trip. So, a good way of prioritizing your tasks is to, even if you're not about to travel, is to mentally think, okay, if I was leaving the country tomorrow for one month, or for three months, in this list, what can I ignore? And what can I prioritize? Now, why I've given, this exa- I've given these examples, not because I wish to sit here to teach you management skills, but rather, both of these skills apply to What is our goal and objective? If, genuinely, our goal and objective is Allah and the Akhirah and our spirit, the development and the fulfillment and the giving of life to our spirit, then, in all of our tasks, we will prioritize those that lead us towards that objective. Number one. We won't... Burden ourselves with routine maintenance tasks all day long. We will prioritise those tasks which lead us to our goals and objectives. That's the first skill. The second skill, journey. This is exactly what Rasulullah hinted at in this hadith. مَا أرى الأمر إِلَّا أعجل من ذلك, That I do not see the affair except swifter and quicker than this, our journey from this world. So imagine, I know it's a morbid thought, but Allah, Allah protect us, but we all have to go. Imagine if you were to think that if I was to die, if I was to die, some people, Allah protect us all, they contract terminal illnesses. Like maybe someone contracts terminal cancer. And they are told that no chemotherapy, no medicine, no treatment, unfortunately, is going to work because your cancer has gone beyond that redeemable stage. And so, Tragically, we tell you that you have three months, 90 days. It could be before, it could be later, slightly. But we cannot do any more for you. Now, people have been told that. They come home because there's no treatment. They inform their families. Now, this individual has 90 days... Approximately. Only Allah knows the hour of death. But there are indications. Of course there are indications. When the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was in his final days and Rasulullah no one could predict whether he was to live for longer or depart from this world. But his uncle, Al-Abbas ibn al Muttalib, he looked at him and he said, I recognize death in the face of Rasulullah just as I recognize death in the faces of the sons of al Muttalib, meaning his father. So because Al-Abbas ibn Abd al-Muttalib, he was an uncle of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and he had many brothers, and he had seen some of those brothers depart from this world. So Al-Abbas ibn Abd al-Muttalib looked at Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and said, I saw, he He probably related this later, that I saw death in the face of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi I recognized Death in the face of Rasulullah. Just as I recognize death in the sons of Abdul Muttalib, meaning in his family, the signs that he had seen of an imminent departure from this world. So, <clears throat> of course, only Allah knows the true hour of death. Anything could happen, anything could change, but we're not talking about certainty, we're talking about indication. Similitudes. In fact, the verse of the Quran in which Allah says that only Allah knows when death will occur. Inna Allah 'ainduhu 'ilmus sa'ah wa yunuzrul ghyth wa yalammafi al arham wa ma taddri nafsun maada taksib ghda wa ma taddri nafsun bi ayy ardhin tamut, Inna Allah alimun khabir. That verily, with Allah is the knowledge of the hour. Again, the hour. The great hour. He is the one who reveals the rain, sends down the rain. He is the one who knows what is in the wounds. And no soul knows what it shall do tomorrow, and no soul knows where it shall die. These are five things which are hidden, things of the unseen. Only Allah has knowledge of these things. But yet if you look at every one of them, they are indications. Allah only he knows where and when rain will fall, but we have some indication, if you see clouds rolling towards you, laden with rain, and there's a cold wind preceding the arrival of the clouds, these are indications that it will rain. Of course, we could be wrong, we can't say with certainty, but this is what weather prediction is. So, when... Someone is told that you have three months to live. We are not saying that they are most definitely accurate, but there are good indications. So what does a person do in those three months? He or she prioritizes only those things that really matter. They divide their wealth, their estate. They try and reconcile themselves with people and with Allah. People reconcile themselves with creation and with Allah. Remarkably, those who they never got on with for their whole lives. Those that they were bitter enemies of. And whose enmity and whose hatred they clung on to with their lives. Now at the end of their lives, they let everything go. Bitter lifelong enemies are forgiven. Bitter lifelong grievances are buried and dismissed. Especially, I'm talking more about family members. Others won't be, they won't come. This person will not be concerned about them, but immediate family members. So much is forgiven and overlooked because it doesn't matter anymore. It's no longer a priority. Wealth no longer matters. Do you think this person was about to leave this world, is worried about earning more money? No. Because they know now that their journey is imminent. So, just as one of the management skills of timekeeping is this, that you think to yourself, if I was to leave the country for a month tomorrow, I had to go and I have 24 hours. What do I do in those 24 hours? How do I prioritize my tasks? Similarly, we should think that. A lot if I was to journey from this world, and that's a journey from which there is no return, what do I prioritise? We will never be able to do everything. So we need to prioritise. And we need to realise that this obsession with contingency, that A has to be perfect, B has to be perfect, C has to be perfect, before I can move on to something else, or, if everything is perfect around me, then I'm going to be happy. No. We will never be able to make the world perfect. We will never be able to change the world around us. What we can change is the soul within us, the world within us. Our own heart. It's the way we deal with things. This is what Allah and His Rasul, sallallahu alaihi have taught us. The greatest lesson is the world is not perfect. No situation is ever going to be perfect. Nothing. The life of Rasulullah is an example. Now, please don't misunderstand anything I say, but let's look at the life of Rasulullah. Was his life not his own individual personal life, because he was a messenger of Allah, meaning within, but the world around him, was it perfect? as we seek the world to be perfect. So in a perfect world, politically and socially, we want peace, prosperity and stability. Every nation, every country, every state, every society wants peace, prosperity and stability. Of course, we should work towards it, but if it is not in existence for whatever reason, for things beyond our control, then how do we respond to it? One of the greatest lessons is to learn to accept, is not to become agitated. Now, was the world around the Prophet wasallam perfect as we seek it to be perfect in our own lives? No. We have this idea of a perfect family. Father, mother, living comfortably, surrounded by their children, all happy. Subhanallah. Do you know? Who has had a perfect child? Who has had a perfect child? We feel the victim. We feel that the world is against us. I have a right to be miserable. I have a right to be unhappy. I have a right to be miserable within myself and miserable towards others because you just don't understand. No one understands. No one knows or understands what I've been through. Who has had a perfect childhood? Who? What's our idea of a perfect childhood? Children today are surrounded by TVs, games consoles, Xboxes, Playstations, Nintendo Switch. TVs in every room, in the bedroom, laptops, computers, tablets, smartphones, all manner of toys. They've got everything. And even they think, oh, I wish I had a better childhood. So whose childhood is perfect? SubhanAllah. Look at the childhood of Rasulullah. He was born when he came into this world, his father had already passed away. If you and I came into this world with our mother and father alive, just in that sense, we have had more than what rasulullah sallallahu had just in that sense when he was born he had no brothers or sisters just his mother if we came into this world and we had siblings before or after just in that sense we have had more than what rasulullah sallallahu His mother passed away when he was only six years old, and he witnessed her death and burial. At six years of age, he was left alone in this world, no father, no mother, no brother, no sister. How many of us have been in that situation or know anyone personally who's been in that situation? In that sense, so many of us have had more than what Rasulullah sallallahu had. Two years later, after the age—sorry, at the age of six—he then went into the care and custody of his grandfather Abd al-Muttalib, who looked after him for two years. He died, and then from there he went into the care and custody of his uncle Abu Talib, and Abu Talib was noble but poor. So he couldn't really look after him financially. He did, he managed, but he had a large family and he wasn't rich or wealthy. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam began working as a shepherd at a young age. What age? Possibly 10, at least by 12. He was a young teenager, a young teenager. Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam worked as a shepherd labored and earned his own income and keep how many of us have been in that situation allahu akbar and that's how he grew up into a young man having suffered bereavement after bereavement loss after loss and being quite alone no brothers no sisters So when we speak of having a perfect childhood or a better childhood, what did we want? No one's childhood is perfect. We always think that his childhood must have been perfect, her childhood must have been perfect. Nothing is what it seems. Nothing. When it, subhanAllah, We have two worlds, our external world and our inner world. When it comes to the external world, we always think everyone else's external world is better than ours. And when it comes to the inner world, meaning the spirit, we always think that our inner world is better than anyone else's world. So who has had a perfect child? No. Rasulullah's early life around him, I'm not speaking about his heart or his inner condition. No, the world around him, was that perfect? No. Rasulullah, another thing marriage. So everyone wants a perfect childhood, then everyone wants a perfect marriage. was the Prophet wasallam's first marriage, perfect. I don't mean for him, I mean as we see it, as we perceive it. So what's the idea of a perfect marriage for someone in our culture? Not just in today's culture, but it has been the culture for many generations and many centuries, in most parts of the world. The, perfect, the idea of a perfect marriage is that a young man marries a young and married lady. Rasulullah did not marry till the age of 25. And the lady that he married was not younger than him, was older than him. And not only was she previously unmarried, Sorry, not only was she previously not unmarried, but she was a widow, twice widowed lady with children from both marriages. That was the first marriage of Rasulullah And it was a happy marriage. When they had children, Rasulullah lost his first son, his first son Al-Qasim passed away in his infancy. Then he had daughters. All of those daughters, with the exception of Fatima and anha, he witnessed their death in his own lifetime. He had a second son, he died. Later in life he had a third son, Ibrahim. Some narrations say he had more sons, but this is minimum, everyone agrees that he had two sons. Some say he had a third and a fourth who also passed away in the early years. So that would make it five sons. Four at the beginning and Ibrahim anh, towards his later life. But other narrations say only two sons at the beginning, Qasim and Abdullah, and the third son who also died in their infancy, and the third son, Ibrahim anh, who was born from Maria her in his later life, to whom he was very devoted. Prophet sallallahu was Wasallam witnessed his passing away and burial too. So the only child left with him was Fatima radiyallahu anha. And even Fatima radiyallahu anha, he told her before he passed away that of my family, you shall be the first to meet me. He actually told her that you will die soon. So we, what <clears throat> perfect Family setting do we seek? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This was his family setting. And if we we look beyond Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we want our children, we want our children to be the best for us. We want our marriage to be the best for us. Look at the prophets of Lut and Nuh They were also prophets of Allah. The best of Allah's creation are the messengers. Both their wives, Allah says in the Quran, فَخَانَتَاهُمَا Both their wives, the wives of Lut and Nuh السلام, betrayed their prophet husbands. They were prophets of Allah. They should have had the perfect marriage. But their wives actually betrayed them. Not in terms of fidelity and chastity, but in terms of their loyalty to Allah. Their own husbands were calling their people to Allah, whilst their own wives were rebelling against them, disbelieving in them, mocking them. It's related that the wife of Nuh would call him Majnoon, mad. The wife of Nuh would call him Majnoon. We want our children to be the best for us. The son of Nuh he disbelieved in his father. His father prayed to Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to him, ahlik, salih." He is not of your family, he is an impious deed. Imagine how Nuh must have felt. His wife has rebelled against him. His son has rebelled against him whilst he was busy inviting his people as well as his family. Was it any surprise that some members of his people opposed him when his own wife and son disbelieved in him? We want the world to be perfect. Part of our perfectionism is that we want to be liked by everyone. We want to be obeyed by everyone. And we become mad, agitated, anxious, filled with anguish, enraged, when that doesn't happen subhanallah one scholar his student who had spent some time with him he when he was about to depart he said our great teacher and shaykh any parting advice so the teacher said to him don't be allah and don't be the prophet sallallahu what kind of advice is that what he was about to depart. He so said, parting words of advice. Don't be Allah and don't be the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi What do you mean? And he explained, he said, listen. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has control over the world. You have no control. Accept that. It was a harsh way of putting it, but it was a way to hammer the message home. Only Allah has control over the world. So don't go from here thinking that you have control of affairs. You do not control anything. Remember that much. So when things are beyond your control, accept. Don't be the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, meaning only a prophet of Allah has the right to feel that they have to be obeyed. Since Allah says in the Qur'an, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِن رَسُولٍ إِلَّا لِيُطَاعِ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ And we have not sent any messenger except that he should be obeyed by the command of Allah. So even the messengers are to be obeyed because Allah commands the creation to obey them. So only a prophet and a messenger of Allah has a right to feel and to be entitled to. Be obeyed by everyone because that's the express command of Allah so don't be a prophet in the sense that don't go thinking don't go away thinking that everybody has to follow me everybody has to obey me and if people don't then you will become enraged and agitated if you take go away with these two lessons life will be so much easier and simpler things are don't be God Things are beyond your control. Two, don't be a prophet. In that, don't expect to be obeyed. Even the prophets of Allah weren't obeyed. Even though they had every right to be obeyed. And not only were they, diso- were they disobeyed by their people. Nuh alayhi salam was disobeyed by his wife and son. And Lut alayhi was disobeyed by his wife. As Allah testifies in the Quran. So, we want perfectionism. We want a perfect situation, a perfect marriage, a perfect family setting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not even give all of the prophets of Allah a perfect setting. In their family. So what perfect, what perfect situation do we want? When it, Marriage is a famous problem. One only has to look at the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, truly. He was married later when Umm al Khadijah anha died And he married the other wives Aisha, Sauda radiallahu anha, Aisha radiallahu anha, Hafsa and The remaining wives What happened? I'm not speaking about the inner state of Rasulullah Rather The situation around him What we could see and what we know was that perfect as we deem it to be perfect? As we want things to be perfect? Look, Rasulullah contemplated divorcing all of his wives. At one stage, he contemplated divorcing all of them. And he actually did divorce Umm al-Mu'mineen anha. There were challenges. In the marriages of Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam, there were difficulties. There were jealousies, there were rivalries. There were moments of displeasure. There were many moments of disapproval. There were many times when the Prophet sallallahu wasallam refused to speak to some of his wives because there were difficulties. And he contemplated divorcing all of them. Marriages and divorces took place in the lives of the Sahaba. So this is a given. Even our marital situation will not be perfect. It's how we deal with things. This is why I say the path, the pursuit of perfection. We want things to be perfect around us, and then we think that this is what Islam teaches us, that everything has to be perfect, and then I can be happy and content. And if things aren't perfect around me, then I have every right to be miserable, to be agitated, to cause grief, to be grieved aggrieved, and to cause grief and give grief to others. It's how we deal with any situation. Look, we would all want the weather to be perfect. Perfect temperature, perfect climate, perfect clarity, so that we feel happy. We have no control over the weather. So what do we do? When, it, when the weather is not the best, it's how we react to it. If we accept then we might even be able to see beauty in what we accept. We will. We will actually see beauty in what we accept. If we don't, it'll be bad weather outside and it'll be bad weather inside. That won't change. We can't change it. Now, even in marriages, in any situation, I'm not here to speak about marriage, it's about perfection. We want perfection in everything. And if things aren't perfect, we are aggrieved, agitated, disillusioned, displeased, unhappy, very miserable. As a result of which our spirit suffers, our ruh suffers, our religion suffers. Allah has told us what to do to connect yourself with Allah, to remember Allah, to focus on Allah. To accept that the world around us Was never meant to be perfect It's, it's organized chaos Nothing's perfect There are highs and lows Once Prophet Sallallahu He had a camel Qaswa a Very beautiful camel Camels were prized He's always been in a race Once the Sahaba عنهم, They raced with the Prophet Sallallahu And or another rider was riding the camel of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It lost. It didn't come first. It lost. So the Sahaba radhiyallahu anhum actually became very sad. They were deeply saddened by this. That the camel Qaswa lost. The camel of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi lost. The Prophet sallallahu said, "Look." It is Allah <laughs> It is a duty on Allah that nothing rises in the world except that Allah brings it down.? Okay. This is the reality of the world. There are highs and lows. nothing's perfect. Everything that rises rises to fall in the dunya. That's the cycle of life. We rise and we fall by the end of our lives. Nothing stands forever. The greatest of structures have collapsed and will collapse. This is not a a world of permanency or perfection. It's how we deal with things around us, how we accept them. We want the impossible. This is why I mean. We want the perfect solution. Speaking about marriages, let me tell you how I deal often with people in with marital problems very simple people let's say i'm speaking to someone so the husband says my wife is like this like this like this like this like this like a litany of complaints a whole list all the frustration all the anguish is expressed and i listen. And then I say, okay, so what do you want? What do you want? I have only three answers for you. There are only three solutions. There is no fourth. Now, obviously, this I've honed over many, many years. So I'm very proficient at this now. Before, I would spend a lot of time My ears would hurt. My head would hurt, because I'd give a lot of time. But now I've chiseled it down. So I stop them. Pause. I'm sure we could spend a whole week discussing your grievances. I have three answers for you. Three solutions. There is no fourth. Remember that. So now let's go through these three solutions. Number one. You are deeply unhappy about your wife and your marital situation. I want you to answer these questions. And therein lies a the solution. Number one. Change the situation. Change it. Change your wife. Can you change your wife? No. No. Can you change your situation? No. Your first answer is given. Let's move on to the second solution. So you, the first solution is not right for you, is it? Can you change her? Can you change your situation? I can't change it. So there is no longer the first solution. Number two. Leave her. Leave her. Can you leave her? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling him, divorce her. What I'm trying to is get him to think that this is the second solution. It's your choice, not for me to say. It's your choice. Leave her. Can you leave her? No, I can't. Fine. So the second solution doesn't work. So now you only have the third solution. There is no fourth. By Allah, there is no fourth. And the third solution is, accept. Three A's amend the situation. Can you amend the situation? No. Two, abandon the situation. Second, A. Can you abandon the situation? No. There's only the third, accept. Amend, abandon, or accept. Amend, abandon, or accept. Can you Third thing, accept. I can't accept it. Then I said, you are now asking for the impossible. You're asking for the impossible. You want a perfect solution. There is no perfection. No perfection. You want her to be perfect. You want your situation to be perfect. You want everything. You want her on your terms as you want her. You want your situation and marriage as you want it. You don't want to. And you can't change. You can't amend. And you can't abandon either. So what do you want? Your answer lies in these three solutions. You have to choose one. And the most difficult is, that, well, one of the most difficult ones. All of them are difficult. It's difficult. It's impossible to change someone of situation. To some degree, yes, but not completely. The other is to abandon. That's not easy either. The third is to accept. No one's saying that's easy either. The reason is we want a perfect solution in all three. We want it to be a perfect situation where I should be able to change him or her completely. Nobody changes for anyone. One of the rules of life is nobody changes for anyone. Even in marriage. You get what you get. You have to live with it. Truly, you get what you get. You have to live with it. So, cha- amend, amend, abandon, or accept. There is no false solution. Now, why am I giving this example? Because this applies to everything, in any situation. We want the perfect solution, but there is no perfection in the world. We want to change the world so that it's perfect for us. That can't happen. We can't abandon Sometimes we can. Some, some situations we can just walk away from it. Because we are not so tied to it. And where we can't, for whatever reason, the third is to accept. To accept that imperfection. It's our failure to accept which causes us so much grief. Which makes us miserable in the way we are. With ourselves and with others. Yes, there is one thing in which we should be trying to attain perfection. Perfection is not possible there either. But that's, if we want completion, that's a completion we we should be working towards. And that's completion and fulfillment and some degree of perfection in ourselves within. That's what we should be changing. That's all that we have control over. We have no control over anybody else. Subhanallah, Nuh alayhi salam had no control over his wife, let alone his wife. Nuh alayhi salam, had no control over his own flesh and blood, over his son. And he was a prophet of Allah. When some fathers, some parents, mothers or fathers, both, speak to me about their children, some who are disobedient and rebellious and arrogant and insolent. Even practicing. It's remarkable. I've, I constantly deal with situations where the father and mother are practicing and the children are practicing. But they're loggerheads and not just loggerheads, but uh, the child is fully practicing and yet is rude and insolent and arrogant towards the parents and even contemptuous, and disobedient, and yet it's still practicing. I I'll regularly deal with such situations. So again, this idea that religion will make everything perfect—it won't. It won't. Who could have been a greater teacher, a greater guide, than the prophets of Allah, alayhi and Yunus alayhi salam? was unable to change or control his own son. So one word of advice I give to parents as well who weep over their adult children's behavior is this, that you have to abandon this thought that they are your cuddly, cute little children who are still infants in your lap. They are adults. Think of their brains as a machine. They have their own machine. This machine in their head, it has its own way of functioning and its own way of thinking. For them to change, you are going to have to change their brains, their machine, their character. And you have no control over over that, no ability to do that. So the best way is, treat them as adults. Treat them as adults. Not as your children. They will always remain your children. But in dealing with them, Treat them as adults. That way you will be better able to accept their relationship with you. Do not treat them as that cute, cuddly little toddler that you could scold and uh, coddle and kiss when you wanted and scold and reprimand when you wanted and it would still remain loving and affectionate and clingy and attached to you. Don't. They've grown up. They've grown up. And they have their own machine in their head. They have their own brains. They are their own being. Treat them as adults and you will feel much better. Much, much better. We want everything to be perfect. The world around us will never be perfect. The only place, the only thing, which we should be working on to try and achieve some sort of completion is our souls, within. And people say that, well, what about when uh, this idea that if you practice, if you do good deeds, Allah will give you a good life, your heart will be content. So in the Qur'an, Allah says, أَلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا قُلُوبُهُمْ بِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ أَلَا بِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ That those who believe and whose hearts are content or settled, with the remembrance of Allah, lo, in the remembrance of Allah, do or with the remembrance of Allah, or by the remembrance of Allah, do hearts find settlement, contentment. And the other verse of the Qur'an, مَنْ عَمِلَ مِّن ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, whoever does, a good, whoever does good, i.e. good deeds, whoever does good, man or woman, whilst being a believer, Then we shall give them a, a good life. We shall give them a pure life, a good life. And we shall reward them. Give them their reward with the, in lieu of the best of their deeds. Now, this idea that, oh, does this verse mean that if I start praying to Allah, and if I start practicing, then my life will become perfect. Things will be settled around me. My heart will find peace. See, again, we're approaching it in the wrong way. We are still trying to make the world orderly around us. We're still trying to do it. But we're trying to do it through religion. So our goal, our objective, our purpose is still bringing order and perfection to the world around us. And we think that religion is a way to that. So, oh, the dhikr of Allah brings about peace. I want that. Contentment. I want that. Religion, good deeds, bring about a good life. That's what I want. I want a good life. So religion is a means to a good life. We're still looking at it in a completely different way. We still are trying to bring order and perfection to the world around us. Through religion, through pious deeds, through good deeds, through religious observance. That is not what these verses mean. When Allah says we shall give him a good life, many ulama have said... There is no good life except in the Akhirah. The meaning of a beautiful good life is fil Jannah In Jannah You do good in the world Allah will give you a good life. And where's a good life? In the Akhirah. Otherwise what do you mean by a good life? Who don't you think the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam this verse applied to him more and better than anyone else that whoever does good man or woman whilst being a believer we shall give him a good life so the life around rasulullah sallallahu i only spoke about his childhood and his marriage and his children and his family setting but beyond that what about the prophet sallallahu own health did not rasulullah sallallahu get injured did he not bleed? Did he not fall ill? Of course he did. Was he not poisoned? Wasn't it the effect of this poison that resurfaced towards the end of his life? Did not the Prophet wasallam depart from this world at the age of 63 in lunar years? Many people have outlived him and will outlive him did not the prophet sallallahu suffer pangs of hunger and thirst did not the prophet sallallahu suffer poverty was he surrounded by wealth so what's the meaning of good life subhanallah he suffered bereavement after bereavement poverty pangs of hunger thirst and what about the social and the political setting in makkah al he was fine until he declared prophethood and he declared the revelation of the Qur'an. And the same people who honoured him and loved him and hailed him as being the trustworthy, the honest one, suddenly they switched, even family members like Abu Lahab and his wife, Umm Jameel What did they do? They began taunting him, abusing him, persecuting him, ridiculing him calling him a liar. Till yesterday he was the most honest person in their own words. Now he's become a liar. So s- society was not friendly towards him in Makkah al-Mukarramah, far from it. He suffered persecution, ostracization. And politically, they persecuted him. Eventually he had to leave Makkah al-Mukarramah. And then were the 10 years of his life in al al Munawwara settled Externally, in that there was peace and prosperity and security. No. Skirmish after skirmish, battle after battle, siege after siege, raid after raid, death upon death, loss of life, loss of wealth, loss of crops, just as Allah says, Well, an ablunna can be shay in Minel Hoff, he will jew, he won up some mineral unwell, well, unforce with the Marat, who beshir his sabine, ladina Allah says, We will most assuredly test you with some loss. We will most assuredly test you with some, just a bit, of fear, of hunger, and loss of wealth, and loss of fruits and produce, and give glad tidings to those who are patient. Though, and what's the meaning of patient? Those who, when a calamity strikes them, a calamity befalls them, they say, "Inna lillahi wa inna Indeed, we. It is to Allah that we belong, and to him we shall return. These are the ones on whom there are prayers and salawat. Prayers, meaning mercy from their Lord. So prayers and mercy from their Lord, these are the ones who are guided. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even in this verse, doesn't say, when we will test you with loss of wealth and loss of produce and crops, we will give you even better. No. Allah doesn't give that promise. Allah says, when you are patient, and in your patience you turn to Allah and you focus on what really matters, which is the akhirah, that to Allah you belong and unto Allah you shall return, then Allah promises what? Salawat and Rahmah, meaning prayers and mercy, their hearts will be content. Sakina, that's that sakina, tranquility. Allah will make you tranquil. So, how do we achieve that tranquility? So, even in the life of Rasulullah in those 10 years, there was hunger, there was fear. Fear struck Medina. As Allah says, whenever a thing of security or fear comes to them, and that's to do with Al Madinatul Munawwara, there were rumors of safety, there were rumors related to security, there was fear. So, in those years of Medina, there was hunger, there was fear, there was loss of crops, produce, loss of life, loss of wealth. The Prophet witnessed all of that for ten years. And finally, when politically the whole of Arabia came under his rule, and things were settled politically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided to take him away from this world. So, Eve there were fitna, we, we're always talking about this word fitna, fitna, fitna. Of course, there will always be fitna. Allah has said there is fitna. Your children are a fitna. Your families are a fitna. Your wealth is a fitna. What's a fitna? The word fitna originally means well the word fatna originally means to burn something like metals to check whether it's genuine gold and silver or not. So they would melt gold and silver to check whether it's genuine gold or silver. So severe and intense heating and burning to test. That's the original meaning of fatn To burn and in order to test. To melt in order to test. To see whether it's genuine or fake that's the original meaning of fat. So and then the meaning developed to any trial or tribulation, any test or any temptation which places a person in a position where they have to decide and make a choice. And their choice, their decision will either be a good one or a bad one. It will test their faith, it will test their integrity, their sincerity. Do they pass the test or not? Do they succumb to the temptation? Or do they resist it and spurn it? Do they, are, are they proven true in that trial and tribulation under the heat of the test or not? Do they prove to be sincere or insincere? That's the meaning of fitna. So anything which becomes a fitna, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us through our wealth, through our wives, spouses, our children, our neighbours our community, everything. All of this is a fitna. So we're always talking about fitna, fitna. Rasulullah sallallahu has promised us, foretold us, that you will see fitnas one after the other. The plural of fitna is fitan. You will see fitan one after the other in rapid succession. Each subsequent one will be more testing, more darker than the previous one. In fact, in one hadith he says, fitn will come in such a way that the subsequent ones will make thin and dilute the previous ones. I.e., a fitna will come and a person will think, this is going to destroy me. This one is going to destroy me. And then they somehow scrape through. So another one comes... And that subsequent fitna is so great that the believer thinks that do you know what? This is the one that will destroy me. And in comparison to this one, the previous ones were nothing. And then he manages to scrape through that until another fitnah comes, which is even greater. And that one makes thin and dilutes the previous ones. So Rasulullah has already foretold that this will happen. Even in terms of politically, we have this idea that, uh, in terms of khilafa, in terms of rule, in terms of uh, politics, there will there can be a perfect situation. Even politically, there is no perfection. Look at the after Rasulullah sallallahu passed away. Yes, Abu Bakr As-Siddiq radiyallahu an assumed the reins of khilafa. But did he do so easily without any difference of opinion? No. As soon as the Prophet passed away, a difference of opinion arose amongst the Sahaba عنهم, as to who should become the leader. Although it was settled, they overcame that difference, but there was a difference. And then Abu Bakr عن, only ruled for 27 months. And yet, in those 27 months, Fitna upon fitna raged. Many tribes rose in rebellion. Many refused to, some of them renounced Islam, some of them. Others did not renounce religion, but they renounced their loyalty to Abu Bakr. And others, they did not renounce their religion, they continued to be faithful, pray and fast, but they refused to pay him zakah. Because of an interpretation. Their interpretation was that we, we, we were only expected to pay zakat to Rasulullah sallallahu and not to anyone else. In any case. So these were the fitan that raged in Abu Bakr عنه, short khilafa, And then was the time of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab an. Yes, he ruled for approximately 10 years. But even in that period, there was famine. There were other problems. And then he was assassinated. He left this world, not peacefully, but assassinated. Where was he assassinated? What greater fitnah could there have been than the fact that he was assassinated on the Sajjad an the of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, whilst he was leading the believers in Masjid Al-Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Fajr. salah. After him, Sayyidina Uthman, an became Khalifa. And there was great turbulence in the later years of his Khilafah. For six years, things were relatively settled. But six year, for the latter six years, there was great turbulence. It led to rebellion. And this was during the time of the Sahaba, anhum. Although the rebels were not the Sahaba, they were non-Sahaba. And then it led to his own martyrdom. And then Ali, radiyallahu an's Khilafah. And then during that time, there was opposition to Ali and difference, strong differences from amongst the Sahaba. We know of the famous Battle of uh, Jamal, the Battle of the Camel, where on the one side you had one of the wives of the Prophet Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha, you had many of the other senior Sahaba. On the other side, you had Ali and many of the senior Sahaba. That was... In, to all intents and purposes, it has been described by historians as a civil war. It was the first civil war. And then after the time of Uthman and Ali, anh, in fact, later during an's reign, there was the Waqat al-Sifin, the Battle of Safin. Again, another civil war, that as historians have described it. And then Muawiyat ibn Abi Sufyan eventually... Uh, became the ruler after Ali radiyallahu an Hassan radiyallahu the eldest son of Ali radiyallahu came to a truce and agreement with him. Things were relatively peaceful till Muawiyat ibn Abi Sufyan departed from this world. And then his son Yazid took over. As soon as Yazid took over, what happened? Many of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu refused to pay him homage and accept him as a leader. Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu set up his own khilafa in Mecca al-Mukarramah and this was a rival khilafa to the khilafa of uh, the Banu in Umayyah in Damascus there were many battles there was a massacre just outside al-Madinah al-Munawwarah known as the Harrah, the massacre of the Harrah. and Sahaba were killed in that period eventually the Kaaba was bombarded by uh, mangonel and catapults and it was set on fire and by the Umayyad army. They laid siege to Makkah al-Mukarramah. These were Muslims, fighting Muslims. In fact, Sahaba were victims. Abdullah ibn Zubayr whom people gave bay'ah to as a khalifa, he was eventually, and quite tragically, he was executed and strung up on a gibbet. And his mother had to retrieve his body. Asma radiallahu anha, the daughter of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, anha, the sister of Aisha radiallahu anha, had to retrieve the body of her own son in her old age. And he was a sahabi of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, and this was in their time, and then after the Banu Umayyah, these fitan Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam has foretold that these fitan will come in rapid succession, one after the other. Each one more calamitous, each one more darker, each one more dangerous and more threatening than the previous one. And this will never end. So this was in the first hundred years of Islam, during the time of the Sahaba. So even politically, even socially, this idea that there won't be fitan The world will be filled with fitan and chaos. In religion, in our families, in our lives, around us, what matters is that we don't seek perfection in the outside world. (coughs) Rather, we seek perfection, some degree of perfection, some degree of completion, some degree of fulfillment within. That's the only place where we can find it. And what's the meaning, then, and I end with this, of the verse, Allah will give them a good life, And hearts find Tumanina. Tumanina does not mean joy or happiness. Tumanina means settlement. When something settles. In fact, another good way of understanding is when we pray Salah, when you say Allahu Akbar and you go into Rukur, when you rise from Rukur and then you fall down again, there are some postures of Salah which are very brief. So like when you rise from Rukur, and you stand, which is known as a qawmah, the standing, and then you fall into sujood, prostration. That standing in between the rukur and the sujood, that is known as a qawmah. Many of us make the mistake of rising and then falling straight away. The fuqaha, the jurists of all the schools have said that one needs to practice dumanina. And what's the meaning of is that all the bones of the body, the limbs of the body should be settled. So when you rise from you don't fall into sujood straight away. You pause. And how long should the pause be? Until your body has settled. So when you rise from you wait momentarily until your limbs and your bones settle. They fall into place. That's Dumanina. Then you go into sujood. When you rise from sujood and you sit before your second prostration again, you don't just sit with your body tense and spring back into the sujood. No, you sit and then you wait until the bones and the body has settled. That's tumanina. So the word actually used is tumanina. So your body should achieve tumanina before you move to the next posture. Otherwise, our prayer will simply be a series of rapid motions, or as the Prophet ﷺ describes in one hadith, pecking like birds peck. So tumanina means to be settled, and that's what Allah says in the verse. Those who believe and whose hearts are settled with the dhikr of Allah. Are settled by the dhikr of Allah. This is the meaning of dhumanina. It doesn't mean that if I start doing the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything will become perfect around me and I will be happy. No. It means I will find contentment and acceptance And settlement. My heart will no longer be agitated, perturbed, disturbed, turbulent. There may be turbulence around me, but in the dhikr of Allah, my heart will no longer feel that turbulence, but my heart will be settled. There may be chaos around me, but inshallah there should be no chaos in my heart. I have no control over the world around me, but I can bring about some control in my heart. In fact, You know when we control, one of the reasons for perfectionism is that we try to feel control. We feel out of control in ourselves, so we try to control the situation and people around us. This is why control freaks control people around them. It's because they are suffering from inner chaos. They lack control within, so they try to control people and situations around The sensible thing to do is not to try to control anyone or anything else. Why do it uh, indirectly? Try and gain control of yourself within. And that is done through the dhikr of Allah, through establishing that connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with acceptance. And the Prophet so I end with the verse I began with, which is, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ Surely there is for you in the Messenger of Allah a beautiful model, a beautiful example. For those who fear Allah on the final day and who remember Allah excessively, let us make these things our priority. Allah the Akhirah, the final day, and our relationship and connection with Allah through the dhikr of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and his remembrance. If we do that, we shall find peace, contentment, settlement, in the example of Rasulullah Sallallahu wa sallam, whose heart was truly content and settled, despite everything that raged in the world around him. And we can achieve the same. His life was one of very of calmness. Again, this is part of that. But we are when we are perfectionist, when we try to seek perfection outside, we become very anxious. Part of the agitation is anxiety. Rasulullah taught us calmness in everything, in speech, in manners, <clears throat> in approach. Wants a Sahabi radiyallahu anhu. We, we, we're always worried about timing. Yes? I mentioned earlier, we want everything to be on time. We want to... We're never on time. But we expect everyone else to be on time. And if someone comes late, even by a minute, we become very agitated. I expected you to be here now. Subhanallah. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did not even become displeased When people arrived late for Salah. He encouraged them to arrive on time for Salah. He encouraged them to come early. Once a man came and for Salah he was late. So he was running. He ran in the masjid. So after Salah, Prophet ﷺ said, When you come to Salah, come to Salah calmly. Calmly. No need to run. If you arrive on time, so be it. But if you miss a rak'ah, or if you miss part of your salah, you just make up for it later. So Rasulullah sallallahu for whom and to whom salah meant everything. And that's the first pillar of Islam. He did not become agitated, or ple- displeased, or annoyed When people arrived late for Salah, he'd encouraged them to come early. But even when they did arrive late, even then, he said, no need to rush. Don't run in the masjid. Don't rush. Come calmly. And his whole life was like that. One of calmness. Real calmness. Calmness and patience in everything. People provoked him. He was patient. Things didn't go according to plan. He was patient. Things weren't the way he wanted them to be at any particular time. Rasulullah was accepting, tolerant and patient. This is why Allah says, this is the meaning of settlement and peace. If we are going to become annoyed and agitated over minor things because of our obsession with perfection and things to be the way we want... How will we ever deal with major things? How will we? This is why we lose it. We become agitated because someone's a minute late. We become agitated because we're driving and someone cuts a corner. We become agitated on the roads. This leads to road rage. Over small things, minor things. So when we are unable to control ourselves and our feelings and our emotions in minor things... What then happens when major calamity strikes us? What happens? We go haywire. We lose ourselves. We are unable to cope. We completely break down. We do. Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam have taught us so much, and this is part of that. Bring about fulfillment and completion within. Work on your soul. Try and change the world within you. Work on your tolerance, your patience, and you're following the example of Rasulullah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Don't try to achieve perfection outside. Things can be broken outside, but you can mend your own heart within. Things can be unsettled and chaotic, but you can bring about some peace and order and tranquility to your soul by working on yourself, not by trying to change the world around you because that's impossible. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. اللَّهُ wa وَرَسُولِهِ نَبِيَّنَا مُحَمَّدِ وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ يَجْمَعِينَ سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ وَبِحَمْدِكَ إِلَّا أَنْتَ نَسْتَغْفِرُكَ إِلَيْكَ